gifts we share. Today's message, are we really ready to follow Jesus? Hmm. First section, you've got to take the long view. As Luke begins a section that spans several chapters, it's one in which Jesus' focus shifts. He had begun largely ministering in the northern part of the country in Galilee, but he turns his attention. This next section in Luke describes Jesus' ministry in the south part of the country, Judea, an area much closer to Jerusalem where his earthly ministry will climax in his crucifixion. Now, it probably would have been much easier to continue teaching and working miracles up there in Galilee, but that's not what he had ultimately come for. At the Transfiguration back in the middle of chapter 9, Luke records this about Jesus' miraculous encounter with two outstanding Old Testament prophets. Luke 9.31, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now the word departure in the Greek is literally exodus. Yeah, like that book in the Bible, exodus. In Luke 9.51, Luke emphasizes how deliberate Jesus is about the change in focus as he begins this new phase of ministry. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set out resolutely. Literally, he set his face very determined. He was taking the long view in this decision to leave the relatively less challenging north and head towards the Jewish political center and hotbed, Jerusalem, with its various groups vying for influence, Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians, Zealots, and so on. It's May, and of course you know what May brings. April showers bring May flowers and motorcycles. Yes, those warming temperatures mean you will be hearing them more out on the road. When I took my motorcycle course a couple of years ago, there were some things they emphasized that were different about driving a motorcycle compared to a car. One had to do with making a turn at an intersection. In a car, as you're driving, you're often looking for the turning point around the center of the intersection. But on the motorcycle course, they emphasized taking the long view, looking way down that road you're turning into rather than some point at the middle of the intersection. You're searching for the path you'll be heading into, not the actual turning point. Jesus is taking the long view as he makes this turn in ministry direction. The cross is looming at the end of the road. His exodus and ascension will be the time of his heavenly enthronement to the right hand of his heavenly father. It's not just fun and games anymore, feeding the multitudes and walking on water. He is choosing a path that leads to a head-to-head confrontation with powers that can destroy him, physically speaking. There is an urgency to accomplish his mission with the exact timing and circumstances that will point unarguably to his being the paschal lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He has to get crucified exactly at that time at Passover, and that's kind of beyond his control. He's following the Father's plan. In his interactions on the way, including today's passage, we see this long view. 
Christ's sense of destiny and purpose accentuate his call to others to follow him, to metanoia, as Mark was talking about, repent and follow, rather than be distracted by lesser goals and attractions. Next section, how to deal with hostility. Do you have anyone that irritates you? Don't all answer at once. Are there certain personality types that tend to annoy you? Would there be some people that when you see them coming down the sidewalk, you consider crossing the street so you don't have to meet them? What about those who actively oppose you? Are there some who've been hurtful to you in the past, who you're defensive towards, maybe who tend to get your hackles up? The people who lived in Samaria did absolutely not get along with the Jews. Originally, they had been part of the northern ten tribes of Israel that were exiled to Assyria. But upon return, they intermarried with other races and so were viewed by Jews as impure half-breeds. They even had an alternate temple located on Mount Gerizim. There had been attacks on their holy place in the past by Jewish radicals, so the two groups hated each other. This explains why when Jews that lived in the northern region of Galilee made pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the annual festivals, instead of going through Samaria, they often detoured east of the Jordan River and went down along it on the west, then to the south and then to the west into Judea to avoid the area of Samaria altogether. Now, it wasn't so much a problem going home, but the Samaritans took it as a slight to their own temple when Jewish pilgrims, pilgrims were headed to Jerusalem instead. But this time, instead of taking the, that detour route, the common route, down the east side of the Jordan River, Jesus went straight through Samaria. Perhaps it's because he was taking the long view, having come to be the savior of all people, even the Samaritans. Did it make the Jewish disciples wince when he specifically mentioned Samaria in his departing words at the ascension in Acts 1? Acts 1 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Oh, that region? You want us to go where? The Samaritans were hostile to Jews headed to Jerusalem. How does Jesus deal with those who are hostile? First, he gives them a chance. As we've been saying, he didn't take the usual detour route. He headed straight through their territory. Luke 9.52 And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Humph. Think of the offense this must have come across as. Not welcoming the very Son of God, the Messiah? Would this not be an action that could warrant divine wrath? How do you feel when you can tell you're not welcome somewhere? doesn't exactly warm your heart towards the person, does it? But Jesus was at least giving them a chance. He consciously had not avoided going there. Now, two of John's closest, Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, nicknamed Sons of Thunder, had been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and witnessed him speaking with Moses and Elijah. 
Maybe that reminded them of the time Elijah was being forced by soldiers to accompany them to the king, and Elijah called down fire, which burned two different lots of 50 soldiers to a crisp before they learned to ask instead of demand. See 2 Kings 1, 10 to 12. Anyway, something prompts James and John to take revenge on this, these inhospitable Samaritans for not welcoming the master. 9.54. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Hmm. Does that adequately describe how you want to react to those who actively oppose you, who ridicule you, who block your plans, who undermine your innocent intentions, who hate your guts for seemingly no reason? Do you want to call fire down like Elijah did? Nuke them, Lord. Make them crispy critters. And our innards tend to corroborate that that would, in fact, be the fair and defensible thing to do. But instead of a nuke for the Samaritans, Jesus has a rebuke for his all-too-eager disciples. Verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. No fire from heaven this time. Not even a harsh verbal condemnation for those who rejected him, who were being so unwelcoming. Instead, Jesus just absorbs the hit, alters his plans, and moves on to another location. How did he respond to those who are hostile? He gave them a chance. And then he responded with grace instead of reacting with hate. I'm glad he did that because there was a point in life at which I too was not welcoming towards him. We all have turned from God and gone our own way, telling the Savior to take a hike. Whenever we sin, we are attempting to shove God off the throne and install ourselves there instead, insisting we know best. That's the metaverse version, not metanoia. I rule in that universe. Jesus had the cross in view, at which time he would be insulted and jeered at and ridiculed, but he would pray forgiveness for those who reviled him. How he responded to the Samaritan village was practice for how he'd respond at the cross. Isaiah 53, 3 and 7. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his earthly ministry, Jesus did not come to pronounce judgment, but to proclaim God's kingdom, an offer of salvation. 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That was his mission, what he was about. That was his long view. How can we respond towards those who are hostile to us? Christ's Spirit empowers us to respond with grace the same way he did. Also, Paul wrote Romans 12, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. 
if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. We don't have to settle the score. That's best left to God. That's his department. We just take a deep breath and move on to the next village. On July 3, 1988, an American Navy cruiser, thinking itself to be under attack by an Iranian F-14, gunned down an Iranian airliner containing 290 civilian passengers, killing them all. Polls revealed that most Americans were against paying compensation to the Iranian victims' families. The hostage crisis was still fresh in many minds. In spite of this, President Reagan approved compensation. Afterwards, he was asked by reporters if such payment would send the wrong signal. His response was, I don't ever find compassion a bad precedent. Revenge may be easier to practice, but compassion demonstrates the heart of God. Next section. Hurdles to being a follower. As Christ continues his journey towards uh, Judea and Jerusalem, his goal of laying down his life at Golgotha, no doubt, was prominent in his thoughts. That was a big item in his long view. Doing his father's will came with a big price tag. This probably helped keep in perspective the offers of volunteers who glibly promised support without really counting the cost of what discipleship might involve. At the end of Luke 9, Jesus interacts with three individuals who don't seem to have thoroughly thought through or appreciated what following Jesus might entail. F.F. Bruce summarizes it this way, the first case is that of inconsiderate impulse, the second that of conflicting duties, the third that of a divided mind. Do any of those apply to us? Acting on impulse being torn by conflicting duties, unwilling to let go of what seemed to us to be important responsibilities. Having a divided mind, not being totally convinced, wanting to put conditions or limitations on our willingness to serve God. We Canadians love our creature comforts. How many Tim Hortons on local street corners is too many? Unfortunately, as we roll up the rim to win, we may risk adding rolls to our anatomy. Jesus needed to warn the first candidate the life of discipleship was not one plush with earthly comforts. Verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Uh, He was many nights camping out in the open. Uh, Patty and I last night, we spent the night in the tent trailer, and I dutifully turned on the furnace and adjusted the temperature, only to find out about 3 a.m. that the furnace was not, in fact, working, and so I had to put on an extra quilt and so on. It's tough enough even in an unheated trailer, let alone sleeping out in the open, as Jesus did. 
If you've been listening to prosperity gospel preachers who've told you obedience is the, the path to material blessing and a new car and fine house and your own airplane, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's a different gospel than the one Jesus preaches. The Lord promises to be with us and to supply our needs, not to line our bank accounts or increase our net worth. Jesus may have a certain project for us that requires giving up a certain measure of security or settledness. Can we put our comfort on the altar? Recently, a missionary family connected to our congregation announced they would be relocating their entire family from Ontario to Saskatoon to work with a new mission agency producing gospel outreach materials to First Nations groups and others. That's a huge upheaval. It's tough being a missionary kid when you have to say goodbye to friends and make new ones in a strange area. As parents, you long for stability and supportive relationships for your children, so it's not easy to uproot them and start over in a new place. But following Christ's call is paramount. So one hurdle to being a follower is prepare to be uprooted. Another hurdle is Priorities may clash with others' expectations. Verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this may sound kind of harsh at first. Was the man's father recently deceased? Wouldn't it be all right to at least finish the funeral? But John MacArthur comments on the parallel passage back in Matthew 18, the phrase, I must bury my father, was a common figure of speech, meaning, let me wait until I receive my inheritance. Ah, it's not that the man's father had actually already died. He was stalling for time, biding his time until he came into his share of the family fortune. His anticipated security. Who knows how long that could take? His priority wasn't really following Jesus, but establishing his retirement nest egg. By contrast, Jesus' mission has a sense of urgency. Back in 951, Christ resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The clock is ticking. The cross is coming into view on the horizon of Jesus' agenda. If the man truly wants to follow the Savior during his earthly ministry, time is running out. Jesus responds to the man, let the dead bury their own dead, probably meaning those who are spiritually dead, otherwise preoccupied, bent on earthly goals, amassing wealth or titles or status. Security, eternally speaking, is not to be had by angling craftily for anything this world offers. Paul advised Timothy about true wealth in 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The coming age. The life that is truly life. That's the kingdom view, the long view beyond this temporal life's span. 
Next, Christ's encounter teaches us to look to God, not others, for your validation. Another volunteer offers to come with Jesus, but with strings attached. 961 to 62. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The committed disciple does not say, I will follow, but. F.F. Bruce called this the case of a divided mind. This man was pulled in two directions he would probably have had opportunity down the road to touch base with his family. Missionaries have sometimes found that people who are candidates for baptism in pagan cultures sometimes are dissuaded by their families if they go to spend time with them before the baptism. Our upbringing and our families of origin are huge influences in our lives and can pull us away from devoting our lives to Christ's kingdom. Jesus calls us to put him first in our lives, above family attachments. Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Strangely, we find when we are crucified to self in order to belong to Christ, we can actually become better parents to our offspring than if we were not a Christian because the Holy Spirit becomes active in our lives to pour God's love and wisdom and grace into our parenting. But Jesus beckons us to love him most of all. Section, where's your focus? What do you have in view in your life? Is it the long view, the kingdom? That's what Jesus urged that second man to do. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Is God's agenda overriding and steering your day-to-day, month-to-month plans? Are you just living paycheck to paycheck, or do you have a more eternal plan in focus? Jesus used a farming analogy for that last fellow, uh, Luke 9.62. NLT, anyone who puts the hand of the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Growing up on the farm, I got the chance to plow a fair bit. My brother was into no-till, that came later. Uh, Dad was a good plowman. I have a trophy of his from the 1947 international plowing match. Except I got to use a tractor, whereas he started it with a horse. This is... uh, one of the local plowing matches where he put his hand to the plow, Bryce Skinner's on the tractor there. Back in 47, they would have been using horses, of course, rather than, but this is the sort of plowing. Dad taught me once I got the tractor lined up in the furrow to pick an object on the horizon like a fence post and try to keep the center ridge of the tractor in line with that. We need to take the long view in life and in following Jesus. Are we actually aiming at anything? Someone has said, aim at nothing, you're bound to hit it every time. There's a story about a farmer who was teaching his son to plow and told him the same thing, pick an object on the horizon and keep the tractor pointed in that direction. Father came back later and found the furrow wandering in all directions very crooked. When you ask the son about it, the son explained, I did just what you said, Dad. I, I picked that cow over there and kept aiming the tractor right at her. 
you got to choose your guidepost carefully. Chuck Swindoll tells the story, this story about keeping the cross of Christ in view, informing our daily actions in a way that's coached by God's kingdom. From every direction, something or someone clamors for our attention. A distraction draws our eyes, and the next thing we know, we've swerved off the road and headed down another detour. One Chicago youth pastor came up with a clever way to keep his group on track. Concerned that the balmy beaches of Florida, the site of their upcoming evangelism trip, would lure the teens from their purpose, he fashioned a cross from two pieces of lumber. Just before they climbed on the bus, he showed it to the group. He said, I want all of you to remember that the whole purpose of your going is to glorify the name of Christ, to lift up the cross, the message of the cross, the emphasis of the cross, the Christ of the cross, he announced. So we're going to take this cross wherever we go. The teenagers looked at one another a little unsure of his plan, but they agreed to it and dragged the cross on the bus. It banged back and forth in the aisle all the way to Florida. It went with them into restaurants. It stayed overnight with them where they stayed. It stood in the sand while they ministered on the beach. At first, lugging the cross around embarrassed the kids, but later it became a point of identification. That cross became a constant, silent reminder of who they were and why they had come. They eventually regarded carrying it as an honor and privilege. The night before they went home, the youth leader handed out two nails to each of the kids. He told them that if they wanted to commit themselves to what the cross stood for, they could hammer one nail into it and keep the other with them. One by one, the teens drove their nail into the cross. About 15 years later, one fellow, now a stockbroker, called the youth leader. He told them that he still keeps that nail with him in his desk drawer. Whenever he loses his sense of focus, he looks at the nail and remembers the cross on that beach in Florida. It reminds of him who is at the corner, core of his life, his commitment to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you resolutely set your face to Jerusalem. You knew very well what was awaiting you there. But you did not shrink from the Father's plan, even though it would be painful. Thank you for loving us that much that you saw it through. Forgive us for times we have been conflicted in our motives, the times we have let family concerns or creature comforts or this world's yearnings get in the way of following you. Grant us grace to resolve afresh to put you first in everything, to respond with grace and compassion when others are hostile to us rather than with knee-jerk emotional reaction. Send your companion spirit to guide and coach us each day, we pray. Let us not forget your nails. In Christ's name, amen. You may uh, stand as we close.